Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. We're about to speak to our first guest for today, uh, the wonderful Aaron Wyatt. Aaron is a Noongar academic and accomplished musician. He has a doctorate by research from the Sir Zelman Cowan School of Music and Performance and recently made history as the first Indigenous conductor of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Aaron, welcome to Indigenuity. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on. I, uh, I was so excited to see this, uh, this history-making step recently and then listening to some of your interviews. I was, I was just so interested. I had to learn more about you. And um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on. I have a, a couple questions. Uh, one I wanted to start with was, uh, you know, you're, you're an accomplished uh, violinist. You've clearly uh, stepped into a role as a conductor making history. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about when did your interest in music spark? Yeah, so I, I've been doing music since I was young. Um, ever since I was sort of five, I sort of started taking uh, violin lessons. Before that, we had a family friend who had a piano, and I'd always been sort of drawn to the in- instrument and really interested in just playing around with it. Uh, and so my parents took me to some sort of music uh, appreciation classes, musicianship and sort of classes for kids. Uh, that went really well, and they suggested that I learn an instrument. So I really wanted to learn piano, but... Uh, my parents were worried that I would be sort of too small to sort of really navigate the keyboard all too well at that age and thought, well, violins come in small sizes, so uh, I started off on that uh, and then kind of just continued ever through, uh, ever since. Uh, so I spent a lot of time you know, growing up through the, the youth orchestra system, through the, the junior orchestras there, uh, the string ensembles, and then into the main uh, senior orchestras. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just been an ongoing thing since then. That's beautiful that your family was so encouraging. Is uh, an interest in music common in your family? Not really. I mean, it's not like my parents aren't interested in music, but neither of them really play anything. Um, I think they might have had some lessons when they were younger, but never really continued on. And so how did it evolve? So uh, one of the facts I learned about you, which I found really interesting, is that you, you started off... Uh, at least from a, an, a university level, you started off with a focus actually on science and engineering, and you ended up making the change over to uh, focus on music studies. So, could you tell us a bit about what, why you made that decision, how that came about? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'd always been interested in science and engineering, and, and you know, went through high school, going through various phases of being interested in like astronomy and astrophysics, chemistry. Um, all the way up until eventually I, I said I started a double degree in biomedical science and electronic engineering at uni. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't really, I mean, I, I couldn't see myself doing uh, you know, work in the field beyond, uh, you know, being at university. Like the sort of stuff that I wanted to do would, would have been sort of research. Uh, and back then, I just wasn't very disciplined in terms of writing up lab reports and things like that. and just couldn't see myself going into academia, which is kind of ironic now uh, that I'm sort of at Monash um, doing a PhD at the moment uh, and teaching there. But um, at the time, if I had to choose between, you know, study or practice, practice seemed sort of the more natural fit. And 
I was getting to an age where I was sort of starting to become too old to be involved in the youth orchestra. Orchestras had always been a part of my life, and I really just couldn't imagine not doing it. Um, so I got asked to do uh, to play in the orchestra for a musical, which was sort of a professional amateur kind of gig. So the musicians were, were paid, and it sort of, I guess that that was this realization that well, maybe I could actually do this for a living. Uh, and so yeah, I transferred from science and engineering to, to music at uni, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, and what was that process like with the transfer? Was it something that was rather easy to switch over, or uh, did you end up changing institutions to be able to uh, focus on music? I, I stayed in the same institution just because it was sort of easier and less hassle. And it's, I mean, Perth has a very interesting scene in terms of, of how tertiary music education goes there. There's, there's two institutions, um, and it kind of varies over various periods of time as to which institution happens to be the best place to go at the time. So I was at UWA, and at the time that I was there, they just tried to combine the two departments, UWA and Whopper, in a sort of failed experiment. They sort of split apart, and UWA kind of was left in the better position at that stage. Now it's kind of, I mean, it sort of ebbs and flows. Uh, and so I, I actually ended up doing my honours at, at Whopper, so I've been to both uh, institutions. But the, the transfer process itself was, was pretty straightforward. Um, basically, you know, you know, once you're in uni, as long as your academic transcript is is sort of solid, changing courses isn't too difficult a thing. So really it came down to just auditioning for, um, for the performance degree. And so the audition went well. Uh, my transcript was fine. So, yeah, I, I was able to switch. Excellent. And you've mentioned that you were heavily involved in youth orchestras uh, most of your life. Mm. When did you make the switch from being someone who was, you know, very interested in performing and like the music, the playing of the instrument uh, side of things to then step into a role where you're actually like helping to facilitate and conduct an orchestra? Yeah, so I, there was a conducting elective that I took at uni and I really ended up, I just really enjoyed it. Um, and so after that, I kind of looked to try and get some work around the place. Uh, started off conducting a few smaller community orchestras, um, and also I auditioned for and, and got uh, an internship with the WA Youth Orchestra itself. So they have a conducting in- internship where there'll be sort of a student conductor who occasionally gets up and, and conducts stuff throughout the year. And, and this particular year, that was me. And so, yeah, I, I sort of like that helped me to, to sort of just get a bit more experience and then from there took some bigger uh, bigger community groups, uh, directed quite a few school musicals for some of the schools that I taught at sort of one or two days a week uh, to just sort of you know, uh, level up my income when uh, there wasn't so much performing work. Uh, you know, most professional musicians sort of teach on the side in some form or other. Uh, so ended up uh, being musical director for a few musicals there uh, at one of the schools that I taught at. And yeah, just kept kept conducting increasingly large things. So uh, in two thousand, I think it's two thousand nineteen. Um, I was conducting in the Perth, Perth International Arts Festival, um, Cat Hope's new work, Speechless. Um, so you know, first time conducting an opera in a major festival, and then just last year. I was lucky enough to get across to Perth <laughs> in spite of all the, the border closures. Wow. Uh, so two weeks of hotel quarantine later, uh, I was able to conduct the WA Opera doing um, 
Gina Williams and Guy Gauss's new opera called Bari Wadol. So it's the first opera entirely uh, in the Noongar language. Wow. That is fantastic. I, I, I hadn't even heard of that uh opera so that and but i know gina williams and i know um, mm. yes i love their music so wow that's something for me to search up after this uh, conversation uh and well and, yeah hopefully it'll hopefully it'll be coming over east at some stage because it you know it had a really great reception over in perth and i'm sure it'll hopefully have a life beyond just that one season oh i sure hope so that would be absolutely phenomenal to see in person i can't even imagine um and so then uh, the other, you made history recently, like this, this just happened, what, last week? Uh, you, uh, you were the conductor with the, uh, for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and the music that was being played was composed by Deborah Cheatham, who is just phenomenal. Do you want to tell us a bit about that experience? How, how did it feel? How are you feeling now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all been a little bit surreal, actually, just because it's it sort of, yeah, it's been such a, a major event. Although, I mean, in terms of the things that I've conducted, it was only sort of a, a two to three minute piece, so not, not a huge work in and of itself, um, but one of really huge significance. Um, it, obviously, long time living here was a commission um, that Deborah Cheatham took on uh, from the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra as sort of a musical welcome to country that the orchestra performs at most of their concerts. In fact, I think these days all of their concerts. Um, and it's sort of arranged... It, it's written in a way that it could be played for a very small ensemble or it can be played with a full orchestra, um, sometimes with a spoken word welcome and other times with uh, actual singing. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was just it was two weeks ago at the bowl, uh, almost two weeks ago to the day, actually. Um, and uh, Deborah was singing the soprano part. And, yeah, it was just it was a very, very short piece, but very uh, significant and um, quite symbolically important. And you also were accompanied by um, some fellow uh, Indigenous musicians as well. How did that add yeah. to the experience for you? Uh, it's, it's just great to, to sort of see uh, these new Indigenous musicians sort of who are up and coming in particular. I mean, for a very long time, well, a lot of this came out of, of um, Deborah Chair's desire to put together an ensemble of um, Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander classical musicians. And of course, there aren't really that many of us around so uh, for about well, just over a decade I was a very regular casual with the WA Symphony Orchestra um, did a lot of concerts with them uh, their major masters and classic series and toured with them to China and Abu Dhabi uh, a few years back but I was sort of the only indigenous person I knew within the state orchestra system um, turns out that uh, you know whilst I was moving to Melbourne and meeting up with Deborah Cheatham and and uh, joining together with other members of this ensemble, uh, Rosie Savage, a horn player uh, working out of Melbourne, who I'd actually met years back um, at National Music Camp. I had, had no idea that she was also uh, of Indigenous heritage. And so it was good to at least meet another person out there who was doing sort of freelance work around the scene and, and playing with uh, groups like Orchestra Victoria. Um, but other than sort of the two of us, they, they haven't really been uh, many indigenous classical music musicians who've been playing at, at that sort of level. So Ensemble Vitala is kind of, well, obviously there's the two of in it, us, us in it, but it's made up of a few other members who, some of whom are, are sort of doing other professions, you know, they're doing well in their their own fields, they've kept up with music, um, and so it's something that they, they do for fun and, and for the enjoyment of it and aren't really looking to, to take it professionally. 
Uh, but we also have like an up-and-coming scholarship recipient, uh, Jackson Morley, he's a young cellist from regional New South Wales, uh, Nundal. And um, he's actually starting uni this year at Monash, learning uh, cello, uh, doing a, a Bachelor of Music. So he's, you know, for him to, to have him there playing in the ensemble, uh, you know, as someone who could potentially be a young upcoming um, classical cellist was just fantastic. Oh, that's exciting. It's always, I feel like I get these stories a lot, particularly on this show, of um, speaking to amazing individuals and they're unfortunately very commonly the first and sometimes the only one, uh, the other in, only Indigenous person uh, with uh, in that field, which is just, it's always so sad, but I'm so glad to hear that there are at least people up on up on the rise, people that we can look forward to in the future. Uh and um, it's nice that you're both at Monash as well. So I guess that he's able to lean on you for support and uh, mentorship, which is a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And, and Deborah Cheatham is, is sort of, has a, a sort of very fractional position out there as well. Um, I think professor of performance studies or something, something like that. Um, but she works with um, the uni on a sort of per project basis. And so uh, is putting together sort of this on-country learning experience that's going to be starting this year. So he'll he'll not just have me there, but also Deborah there to sort of help support him and, and um, to to lean on, which will be just you know such a fantastic opportunity for him. Oh, that's that's heart that's genuinely heartwarming to hear. Uh, for anyone who is tuning in at the moment, I'm speaking with Aaron Wyatt, a, Noongar, a musician and recently made history as the first conduct, Indigenous conductor of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. I wanted to ask you another question, uh, and it was related, sort of looking back at that sort of STEM topic from before, because you had this interest in STEM and then moved, uh, but you have that passion for music. And so music is clearly your life and what you're dedicating yourself to. But from what I've read, uh, technology, the focus on technology hasn't completely left your interests. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with music technology? Sure. It's actually the, a large part of my PhD work um, and research work is based around this sort of um, music tech field. Uh, so the PhD that I'm doing itself is about animated graphic notation. Uh, so I, I play uh, as a violist and violinist with a new musical ensemble, Decibel, uh, started up in Perth uh, just over a bit more than a decade ago now, actually. Um, and now half the members are over in Melbourne, half are in Perth. So it wasn't great during the pandemic, um, but we have a few things coming up this year, which is nice. We'll be good to get back together again. Uh, but a lot of the work that we do is playing these um, experimental sort of animated graphic notation scores. So the, the most basic sort being this long image that scrolls across a screen um, and there's a you know, path to playhead. And as your part hits the playhead, as whatever line or, or object you're reading hits the playhead, you interpret it there. Um, and so I've been developing an iPad app to display these scores and to sort of synchronize these scores throughout the ensemble. Um, so that's, that's been sort of my main project. But because of the pandemic as well, I sort of got involved in another research project that was based, well, that, is, that still is based out of Stanford, um, the project called JackTrip. And the aim of it is to provide, uh, you know, software for low latency audio over the internet so that you can, if you're geographically close enough and have a good enough internet connection, you can play in real time with a musician uh, on the other end of um, an internet connection. Wow. And so it's, it was a very, very niche sort of software for a long time. It started off as actually a command line application, so... 
made it very difficult for most people to sort of access. And um, so I got involved in it because it was an open source project. The source code was there. I noticed a couple of bugs in it that I wanted to try and fix and did that and then started adding a few features and improvements. Uh, got in touch with the team at Stanford who was doing it and mentioned, look, I've, I've made these modifications. You're welcome to the code if you want. And they were really enthusiastic about it. So I've, um, I've been doing quite a bit of work with them. I've had a few talks um, at Stanford and, and have been contributing to the dev team there. And the, the biggest part of the project that I've, I've been working on is creating a, a graphical user interface for it. So you know, I said a lot of musicians aren't really familiar with the command line. Um, and, you know, seeing walls of text on a black screen. So I'm sort of putting it together in a package where you can just double-click on an icon and, and run it and um, get essentially the same result. That's excellent. Like, I have an astrophysics background, and so I know how intimidating it can be trying to deal with command line and... Um, like just coding in general for the first time it sort of looks like a, a screen of gibberish and so it's, it's it's awesome to me that you're bridging this gap for musicians and technology to improve uh, just imp- yeah improve the quality of uh, online interactions I, I just think that's absolutely fantastic how how long do you yeah. have left of your uh, PhD uh, I'm I've, I'm doing it part time because um, I'm also working there at the school of music yeah. um so I'm kind of, I've passed the first milestone, uh, so I've passed the confirmation, so probably a you know, year and a half full-time equivalent left. Excellent. So it'll probably be, uh, hopefully it'll be three years. Oh, well, I'm um, going to have to <laughs> have you back on to talk about uh, some of the outcomes, I think, in a, in a bit of time, because that, that just sounds absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time today, Aaron. Uh, I am so excited about everything you're doing. I love that you're uh, reaching out into the worlds of music and technology. I love that you're making strides as an Indigenous man, uh, a Noongar man, uh, making history, but also helping to, I guess, guide the next generation of Aboriginal musicians as well. So good luck with everything you do. I can't wait to watch from the sidelines. And thank you for this chat. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. So that was Noongar academic and musician Aaron Wyatt. He has just recently made history as the first Indigenous conductor for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And uh, he's clearly doing a very exciting PhD, so I can't wait to find more out about the music technology focus. And now I actually want to have a reflection on a lot of excitement that I've had this past week. Uh, On Wednesday, 23rd of February, I was the uh, host of... a panel for M Pavilion. It was called Aboriginal Science Guiding a Sustainable Future. And we got to have it under the beautiful new pavilion. It's called Lightcatcher. You, you should definitely go see it if you're in the Melbourne area before it's, you know, deconstructed because every year they bring along an amazing new pavilion. And the Lightcatcher, uh, I feel like I can just describe it as though it's like a Rubik's Cube that you sort of pull apart. Uh, it's just like a, uh, the grating that's sort of left. Look, that's not how Rubik's Cubes are constructed, okay? I know, I, I've de- deconstructed them before. But look, just imagine a Rubik's Cube, but it's like uh, 
it's transparent. It's a wire mesh, and it is just filled with these beautiful mirrors that are put there to essentially reflect the light back down to us. And it was just so beautiful, such a nice night. And I got to speak with three of my favorite people, who coincidentally, not <laughs> clearly not a coincidence, have actually been past Indigenuity guests. So I got to speak with Barkinji researcher and curator Zena Cumston. I got to speak with Wiradjuri astrophysicist and TikTok sensation. Kirsten Banks, otherwise known as Astro Kirsten, and Marawari knowledge holder William Stevens. So, as I said, all three of these people, uh, they've been my previous guests, and if you want to listen to what they do, who they are, and where they're going, I really recommend that, once again, hop onto rrr.org.au, look up Indigenuity, and check out those episodes, because I've honestly recently, in pre- preparation for my talk, I went back and I listened to those conversations, and I just adore all three of those people. They're so interesting and fascinating, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, always, there's always so much to learn from them. But I wanted to, uh, I guess I could give some of my reflections from some of our conversations from this past week because uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of fun, a lot of knowledge that came out of that talk. Uh, I, had a, I really enjoyed myself. It was the first time I've ever been, uh, I guess, like the host of a panel. Felt a little bit of pressure, but, you know, look, doing Indigenuity for, what, like 28 to 30 episodes now, actually, by the looks of my notes, uh, you know, I felt like I could probably tackle this one. And so I wanted to just give you all who couldn't make it, or even if you did, just to help you reflect on some of the highlights that came out of our panel discussion. And some of this is probably going to be some of the quirky things because, you know, <laughs> this is stuff that absolutely sticks in my mind. So uh, from Zena Cumston, so to give a bit of background as to who she is, she's a Barkinji woman, a researcher who is mainly focused on native plants. Uh, she's the author of this really cool online booklet. It's free access for anyone. It's called Indigenous Plant Use, and it was created through the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub. And so this booklet has been particularly helpful in the classroom when discussing local Kulin Nation plants. It is really extensive. It gives you a great background of a whole list of native plants that you can be aware of and also how and why you should be engaging with them in your own spaces. At the moment, Zena is also the curator of the exhibition Emu Sky, which is now showing at Old Quad on University of Melbourne's Parkville campus. So I once again urge you all to go check that out while that's open. Uh, I think it's still open for at least a few more months. It's a wonderful exhibition. I've seen it myself. Uh, a number of different artists and knowledge holders have come together to create soundscapes and uh, beautiful artworks and also crafts as well. Like it's, it's every type of sense that you can imagine you get to engage with. So I definitely recommend that you go check it out. Uh, and the name as well. The exhibition's called Emu Sky. And look, if you're a regular on this show, it's probably ringing some bells. And that's because it is inspired by the dark sky constellation, the Emu in the Sky. And so that's, that's a really important feature. And uh, yeah, I just, I just love what she's created. And so last night, uh, I, well, not last night, <laughs> this past week, I spoke to Zena about uh, how we can go about healing our spaces. She said uh, how one of the things that she hates to see, and this was something that was sort of new to me. Uh, I found it quite funny because she was quite passionate about it. She hates to see just a plain lawn, mm. right? Apparently, this uh, plain monoculture monoculture grass is not at all supportive for biodiversity and it's just an ugly mess. And she was saying how, like, some people tend to, you know, rip out the weeds, which are apparently, like, the one good thing from a native perspective that are actually around. 
And so she sort of uh, went on to encourage people to engage with native plants and not to be scared, to embrace them and to bring them into your own yards. There are for a number of reasons this is an excellent option. So we're talking about biodiversity, clearly native animals, insects, everything are going to get a lot more out of plants that are more natural in their environment, right? But also these native plants, which another thing, it's probably an obvious point, are not resource heavy. They don't need excess water. They don't really need fertilizers. They are made for this soil. And so uh, this is, I guess, one of the reasons she encouraged it. Um, But another thing that she wanted to highlight, because I asked, hey, look, this is cool. You know, we've got this booklet online. We're encouraging people to engage with these plants. But what should they think about before just looking at this booklet, picking a few things and, you know, stuffing it into their yards? And really, she says they're pretty, they're pretty uh, easygoing. Uh, one thing that she encourages, though, is that they tend to do best. Native plants tend to do their best when they're actually with a variety of other native plants. So grasses, flowers, herbs, they thrive in those conditions where there's a lot of diversity. So that is something to keep in mind. You know, start with native grasses, get them into your spaces, and then just go nuts. So go online, look at her book, uh, Indigenous Plant Use. It's excellent. It'll help you. It definitely gets started. And um, one thing, of course, to keep in mind, essentially, is just when engaging with native plants, make sure that you're engaging with cooler nation plants. If it's a native plant, but it's coming up from like the top end of Australia, you're probably going to have some sort of rough results. So the next person that I, I got to speak to, uh, as I said before, is Kirsten Banks, who is a Wiradjuri astrophysicist and renowned science communicator. So she's currently doing, uh, she's currently a PhD candidate uh, in astrophysics, conducting research into galactic archaeology and stellar seismology, which she aptly described as stuff that you would associate with the land. But she's looking at it out in space. And I feel like, look, I'm comfortable with that description. I'm an astrophysicist myself, and even I had to have a long yarn with her of, okay, what does this mean, though? (laughs) Stellar seismology, huh? Galactic archaeology, huh? Uh, But she's very knowledgeable, and uh, one of her main focuses is uh, sharing scientific knowledge online. So she's known as Astro Kirsten on all of her social media, and she's a leading local scientist on TikTok, where she's amassed a following of over 300,000 people at this point. When I first interviewed her on Indigenuity, I know that that was back at like the hundred thousands. So she is just on on the up, and it's for a good reason. It's because what she's doing is reaching a lot of people, and it's making a difference in the way that they think. So she frequently uploads, and she essentially tends to make uh, complicated astrophysics topics, like her PhD research, for example, far more accessible for general audiences. And one of the uh, main takeaways I had about this is I was talking to Kirsten about what her motivations were for her science communication. Why did she even hop online in the first place? And probably is no surprise, because I'm sure it's a similar story to most of us, she, she, she loves science communication, okay? But she's very used to doing that face-to-face. And when the pandemic started, you can imagine everyone's going indoors. We don't really get those opportunities to have that type of connection anymore. And so Kirsten was starved. She wanted to talk to people. She wanted to share her love for science. She's very passionate about thinking that science should be accessible to all, that science belongs to everyone. And so her partner, Jamie, he suggested, hey, look, there's this app TikTok, not a lot of science, uh, content happening at the moment maybe you should check it out and I asked her why do you think it's important to sort of go onto these spaces and one thing that she said is that in general science is really inaccessible like (laughs) 
if you want to read any scientific topic, like honestly, anything that I even discuss on Indigenuity, quite frequently when you look it up, it's going to be behind some sort of paywall. So it's really gatekeeping knowledge that I, once again, believe belongs to absolutely everyone. And another thing as well is that some of the methods that we use for communicating science can be quite archaic. So look, uh, switching on to things like radio and stuff, it, it reaches a new audience than if I was just to write a paper for a scientific journal and got that published. And so one of the remarks that stayed with me from what Kirsten said this week was that you need to go to where that audience is. In particular, TikTok is something that's very popular with a lot of the younger generation who I know are becoming way more aware of Aboriginal culture and perspectives than what previous generations in Australia have had. And so to continue to engage with these people, uh, you know, these, these young, young people essentially who are using social media to communicate information in a bunch of different ways, Kirsten's like, that's where we need to go. And so she's done it. And it's excellent because I see... Uh, how many people just feel comfortable to just ask her a random question? Something that they're like, hey, look, I didn't totally understand this. Or um, can you explain what what would happen? Uh, <laughs> I think some of like her recent videos were talking about, can we image the moon in different ways? So not just with optical light, but you say that there's all these different types of light. Can we image the moon in that way? And she uh, she breaks down essentially complicated topics that seem very random, very niche, and puts them in a really accessible format. So I, I loved that sentiment and it inspires me to continue uh, reaching, uh, I guess, using platforms uh, to access new audiences like radio and indigenuity and bring science and Aboriginal knowledge to your airwaves every Sunday. So uh, then my final, my final person, which I spoke to William Stevens, who is a Marawari man, who has just a long laundry list of roles, working with native plants and animals, as well as cultural practices involving the crafting of Aboriginal tools and instruments. He's really talented. And he's also really knowledgeable in Aboriginal sky knowledge. He worked at Sydney Observatory and helped to integrate cultural knowledge in their programs. And that's actually where him and Kirsten met. So uh, if you want to get an understanding of everything he is, I really do recommend you go back and listen to his episode on rrr.org.au and check out Indigenuity because he is really hard to categorize in my opinion. And I feel like every time I chat to him, I find out something new about his his work as a park ranger or at a, a zookeeper, animal rescuer. <laughs> uh, just he, he's, he's a bit of everything. And so I decided uh, in our conversation to sort of put him on the spot, uh, trying to get a, him to discuss a couple of interesting things. And one of the uh, things that I, I brought up, because I just find it so cool, is uh, how through his own research on Aboriginal star knowledge, Aboriginal cultural knowledge focused on Marawari Nation, because there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, I guess, like resources in the way that there are for other communities that we work with in Aboriginal astronomy. And so he wanted to uh, learn a lot more about this for himself and also to help make this knowledge accessible to others. And so through his own research, he actually constructed a map of the eight Marawari clans, which hadn't really previously been, uh, I guess, like uh, conveyed in like a pictorial, like picture format. This is something that is described through oral traditions, through stories, talking about where these clans are, where their boundaries are, certain land features. And so he put together a map. And then, because uh, he's, he's very in touch with his community and with his, uh, his culture and his people, he brought this to community members and elders. And to his uh, absolute delight, they were just stoked 
with how wonderful this map was. And they've actually embraced it and are using that as a resource now, which is just a credit to the hard work that he put into something that he was so passionate about. So if you want to learn more about that map, because I won't go into, I guess, like the full detail of that story, that is in his conversation from last year. But he did talk to us about something just bizarre. <laughs> and it wasn't what I predicted. And it's something that I learned that was new. And look, I'm taking it at face value, okay? So look, if someone Googles this and this ends up being incorrect, I'm going to blame Willie, but also blame myself for just trusting in him. But uh, we asked him to tell us about, uh, you know, imagining that we were with him at Taronga Zoo, where he has previously worked, and saying, look, tell us uh, an animal fact about your favorite animal. And we end up getting a suggestion to focus on the kangaroo. And the weirdest take that he shared with us is about it's what about one of their breeding behaviors. So he was saying that the kangaroo has the ability to uh, keep a, a joey on side alongside them as they travel, keeping one in the pouch nice and safe, but that they also have a fetus inside that is sort of ready to spring into action whenever it is required. So this is an animal that if one of its accompanying joeys uh, something happens to it, it moves on, it is able to actually start for, like continuing that forming and development of that baby kangaroo, which just blew my mind because that is insane. He was saying that this is like a an important aspect as to why they are just bloody everywhere. So uh, look, I had so much fun at that event. It was an excellent opportunity to be able to invite people that I find really interesting along to have a conversation with them in a public setting. Instead of it just being me yarning all the time, I, you know, I can do that for days, but let's, let's, let's try new things. You know, I tried radio, I've enjoyed it, tried emceeing a panel. I loved it. It's all going really well. And um, I'm really thankful to anyone who actually listened to me talk about it the week previously and came down to check it out because it was a wonderful night. So uh, today on Indigenuity, I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Noongar academic and accomplished musician Aaron Wyatt. Uh, Aaron is was recently made history as the first Indigenous conductor for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And he played uh, essentially a piece by Deborah Cheatham, who was the composer and was accompanied by up-and-coming Aboriginal Musician, so it just sounds like a wonderful, uh, wonderful event, and I'm <laughs> grateful for anyone who got to see it live. I hope to hopefully see a reiteration at some point. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.